following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So recently, a couple months ago, they discovered in a mine in Africa a massive diamond. It was 910 carats. And when I saw that headline, I'm like, I've got to read this article. And I showed this picture of this massive diamond. It's a huge, rough, uh, uncut stone, humongous. And I'm reading through it, just kind of fascinated by this ginormous diamond. And I get to the part in the article where it says that it is the fifth largest diamond ever found. I said, what? There are, there are four diamonds larger than that that they found. And so I, uh, I had to Google it on the spot. And I looked up what was the largest diamond ever found. It was found in 1905 in January in a mine in South Africa. So over 100 years ago. And there was a, a man that was, uh, he was one of the supervisors of the mine and he was walking around the service. You know, obviously they've been digging out this huge crater, and then there's these mine shafts that go down underneath. And just on the side, just a couple feet down, just on the side of where they had dug out, not even in one of the tunnels, they found, like, he saw this glint on the side, and he walked down to it, and it looked like a massive piece of glass, just like exposed there on the side. And so he took out his pocket knife and kind of popped it out of the ground, and he held it in his hand, and he's like, Surely this cannot be a precious stone. And so he took it to the uh, gem inspector that they have there at the mine, and he took it to the guy, and the guy looked at it for a second, inspected it a little bit, and threw it out the window. He said, no, nah, that's, that's not a diamond. Lucky for him, he actually went outside and picked it up again and brought it back, had it reinspected by someone else, and, th- and the guy said, this is not only a diamond, It's an exceptionally pure diamond, rare just by that, but it is massive. And I actually want to read you. I have the exact um, size of the diamond. The diamond they found, it's called the Cullinan Diamond, is 3,106.75 carats. Now, I want you to see a picture of it right here. Here's a historic picture of one of the miners holding that dime. I mean, that's almost the size of a softball. It is so massive. You can see it right there. Now, the history of this is pretty interesting. Uh, they had to get it back to England, and so they, uh, they took it aboard the ship. They put it in the captain's safe. They had armed guards around it at all times and sailed it all the way back to England, but that was just the decoy. They actually took the real one, put it in a biscuit tin, and sent it through the mail. Can you imagine how much you'd be sweating waiting for that thing to arrive, an unmarked package all the way through the mail? They took it. It was actually purchased, and then it was given to, at that time, the King of England. And uh, they, they actually took that rough-cut diamond, and they cut it into a couple large pieces. Here's uh, where they did They put it as part of the crown jewel. So the largest piece is in the scepter, still used by uh, the English Royalty, you see that diamond right there in the scepter. Let me just tell you how large that is. That is 530.2 carats right there set in their scepter. The second largest 
they put actually in the crown. Here, check out this picture. You see that in the bottom right there in the middle? That is 317.4 carats. And the other two pieces, they, they made into a brooch. And the British um, affectionately and the royals affectionately call it Granny's Chips. Because the queen often wears it on her lapel. Here's actually a picture of Queen Elizabeth. Those two stones there, the bottom one, the larger one is 94.4 carats. And that top diamond, I mean, it's just a measly 63.3 carats. Can you imagine wearing that out like to Starbucks? <laughs> imagine how terrifying that would be, okay, to have that. Like, apparently, a Queen Elizabeth has, has worn that about six or seven times in her reign. Okay, and so we're talking about this, this idea of extravagant. I mean, how do you define extravagant. And I think we could all say, okay, those diamonds are impressive. I mean, we could all, I think, unanimously say that's, that's an example of extravagance. That's impressive right there. But how do you really define this word extravagant? And, and so here's what we're doing through this series. We're looking at these encounters that Jesus had. Sometimes they are uh, parables that Jesus told. Some of it's teachings that Jesus taught. Sometimes it's an encounter with a person. And so in this particular encounter that we are looking at today is one of the most beautiful encounters you find in all of the biographies about Jesus in the Bible, and all the Gospels. It is really powerful. And it shows how Jesus defines the word extravagant. What's impressive to Jesus? I want you to look at this. It's in Luke chapter 21. Just a beautiful, beautiful story. Luke chapter 21. We're going to look at verse 1. Luke 21 verse 1. Here's what it says. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. I want you to see how the story plays out. Let's get the context. Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and they are in the temple. Now, in the temple, there are this large porch that was probably the size of a couple football fields, and people could sit in there. Rabbis could teach from there, and Jesus is sitting there with his disciples. And it says that they see the rich, the people of means, are coming in, and they're putting their offering into the offering box. Now, in that time period... Their offering boxes weren't like these metal things on the wall like we would have like at our church. The offering boxes are these wooden chests. And what we know from historical accounts is the way that they worked is coming out of this wooden chest was like a metal horn. Like imagine like a funnel, like the bell of a, of a horn. So this metal funnel is coming out. 
And it says that the wealthy are coming through and they're giving their gifts into this offering box. So I want you to go back to that place. You're there in that temple and I want you to imagine what that moment was like. Because I want you to think about the the, uh, currency at that time. There's no paper money, so it was all coins of different denominations. And so imagine the sound of of a wealthy person walking up and with a handful of coins, maybe they pull it out of a bag, and a handful of coins they drop into a metal funnel. Can you hear that sound in your mind? It's kind of like clanging around all down, especially more and more as it's getting lower and lower in the funnel. Can you imagine like all that? Imagine then another person coming up behind and maybe they have two handfuls and they drop one in and drop another and it just makes all of this clamoring sound as it's banging its way down to the bottom of the funnel. Maybe there's another one and they have just like a small bag, like a, a purse of coins that they empty it as, as it's pouring down. Maybe people are turning around to see what all that clamor is. And uh, imagine just that sound as they're watching these people come through And placing their offering in these offering boxes. And then a woman walks up. It's a poor woman. And she's holding in her hand these two copper coins. And in the original Greek, we know actually what denomination these coins were. It says they were lepton. In other words, they were sometimes called, called mites. Very, like the smallest denomination possible, like a penny. She's got two of them. And if you actually saw one, they're smaller. They're about like uh, not even half the size of our dime. They're very small. And I want you to put yourself in the position of this poor woman. She's got to follow all of those people making all kinds of racket in the offering box, right? And she's waiting for her turn. And I wonder if she almost chickened out. Like, almost she was like, you know what, I, I'm going to come back later when there's not been, like, all this racket. Or I wonder if they're like, you know what, I wonder if she's like, you know what, man, why am I even putting these two pieces in? I mean, look at what they give. I wonder if this even really matters. But somehow in her heart, she's saying, okay, this is an offering to you, God. There's just some worship that's being stirred up inside of her that's driving her to say, even though, like, I, it's nothing compared to all these people that have just gone through, she says, okay, And she drops her two coins. Can you hear the sound of that? Just barely a ting as it drops all the way in. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, essentially, did you see that? They say, oh, you mean that person with that purse that just poured all those coins? Yeah, that was loud. No, no, no. Did you see that woman? And his first statement is, she gave more than all of them. I mean, it's this beautifully redemptive moment. I want you to just kind of get in this, I mean, somewhere that woman, somewhere is in heaven today, okay? And, and, and this one, what a redemptive moment. Like, she had to overcome a lot to put those two coins in, in this act of worship to God, and she must have been so embarrassed, and then one day she gets to heaven, and not only did Jesus himself stand back and say, wow, did you see that? Her Savior was so blown away by that. I mean, think about all the times that Jesus astonishes other people. He heals someone, he makes a miracle, and they're like astonished by Jesus, but there's a few times that someone really surprises and astonishes Jesus. 
And how redemptive that not only one day she learned that that was, was a beautiful moment, touched the heart of her Savior, but Jesus has, has preserved that moment and held her up as a picture of generosity for the rest of history. Isn't that beautifully redemptive? Jesus says, did you see that woman? She gave more than anyone. And they have to have been like, Jesus, are you watching the same offering box that we're watching? And those other people were loud. I mean, I didn't even think I heard anything that fell into that box. Did she put anything in there? And see, the reason is because Jesus is saying, he's showing that he views generosity differently than we typically do. And he says, let me tell you why she gave more than anyone. He said those that came through, and he doesn't, it's interesting because he doesn't say that the ones before her did anything bad necessarily. He just says, I want you to see a picture of generosity in this woman. He says the, the people that came before her, he said, they gave. They gave out of their excess. In other words, they gave, these people of means that came through, he says, they gave and, you know, it might not have even affected their lifestyle. Like, they might never miss it. I mean, it's beautiful that they, they gave it back to the Lord, he said, but they probably didn't really rearrange anything in their life. They probably didn't really adjust any of their goals. I mean, they, they might not have even felt it. He said, they gave out of their excess. He says, but I want you to see what this poor woman just did. He said, by putting that in, she gave all that she had to live on. So in other words, she says, this isn't just out of her excess. He said, she's going to feel this. She's going to have to change some things in her life because of this. She's going to have to adjust some of her goals and expectations. I mean, she's going to feel this. This is not just out of her excess. It's kind of the first thing he's Indicating this isn't just out of, of leftovers, stuff that's over the top, stuff that, I, I, that she could give that, that she wouldn't even miss. No, no, he says this is not out of her excess. But then he says, but it's even more than that. She didn't just kind of rearrange some of her life a little bit. He said, this is all she had. She went all in. In other words, she moved past just giving an excess, past just giving in a way that she would feel it, she moved into this realm of faith. In other words, by putting these two mites in, she's saying, God, I'm giving this as an offering to you that unless you show up in my life, it's not going to work out. That's the level she gave. And Jesus said, I... He said, disciples, I want you to see that. Now, why do you think that touched Jesus' heart so much? There's a particular reason why that must have resonated inside of Jesus. Because that's his story. I mean, think about the whole story of Jesus. It boils down to this. He's in heaven. He's at at the right hand of God, the most glorious, beautiful, luxurious place you could possibly be in the presence of the one who created and owns everything. He's at the right hand of God, and he leaves that, the Son of God, 
comes down to earth, God in the flesh. And what's the story of Jesus? He's confined to a human body. Can you imagine what he's surrendering as an infinite God, as as the infinite God, confined now to a human body who now has to sleep and, and his strength can only go so far, and he perspires, and he gets tired, and he breathes heavy. I mean, think of what he offered up just to be God in the flesh, born into poverty, gives himself to the generation he came to teach and to share with. He gives himself that he's rejected by that generation. He is mocked, then he's beaten, then he's stripped of his dignity, then he's tortured, and then he's nailed to the cross. And he did all of that knowing he was coming to die on the cross. Why? He's paying for the sins of humanity. He takes our sin on himself, all of the things that we have done that make us so far from God, but he loves us so much, saying, I'm going to pay for your sins. He takes all of that on the cross, and on the third day, rises again from the dead, defeating death, paying completely for our sins. He gave all for us. Why? So that by that, we gain everything. We gain now all of eternity. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And so he sees that and something resonates in his heart. Something just makes his heart melt when he sees that. And so he says to his disciples, I need you disciples to see this. Because here's what he's going to say to his followers. Unless, unless you take up your cross and follow after me. You cannot be my disciple. Or the ancient word there, my mathetes, the Greek word. Unless, if you want to follow after me, if you want to be a Christ follower, he says, if you want to bear the name Christ, if you want to bear my name, Christian, this is what it looks like. I am on a trajectory to go all in for this world. I'm on a trajectory to give everything I've got as the the God of the universe. I'm giving all that I have for you and this world that I love. So if you're saying, yes, I want to follow you, here's the path you're following. Take up your cross and be willing to go all in following after me. And so he says, this is an important picture, disciples. I want you to see this poor woman. I want you to see this is an important illustration of what I'm saying when I say follow after me and take up your cross if you're going to be my mathetes, my follower. I want to read this to you in in another version. There's a version called The Message, and it basically takes the idea of a passage and kind of summarizes it in everyday language, and I think they really capture the heart of what Jesus was saying here in really beautiful modern English. Listen to how it reads, these these two verses. It says this. He said, Jesus said, He said, the plain truth is that this widow has given by far the largest offering today. All these others made offerings that they'll never miss. She gave extravagantly what she couldn't afford, she gave her all. Isn't that beautiful? 
She gave extravagantly. He says, this is a picture I want you to see. Now, let's just take a time out for a second. Why are we talking about a passage like this? We believe that this is not just a strategic season in the life of our church together. We believe this is a historic season for our church. We believe that Jesus, who this is Jesus, this is your church. We believe that Jesus is saying, okay, West Pines, it's time to get ready for a new era. And, turn, and, and he's turning the chapter. It's time to get ready. He's saying, I'm expanding your vision. Your vision is, when I called you to go make disciples, church, Jesus is saying, it's not just about building this church. He says, West Pines, I'm calling you to have a bigger vision. Dream bigger. Shoot for something bigger. I'm calling you to go after something that unless I show up, it's going to fail. He's saying, I'm expanding your vision to thinking in terms of this. What if it's not just about what happens in these walls? What if we determine success by what happens out of these walls? He's saying, what I'm calling you to do is to go after seeing South Florida, your home, your city, your people, seeing South Florida transformed by the power of the gospel in our generation. He's saying, I'm calling you to go to work, give your life, go after something historic, go after something that you're going to say, we're going to do this or die trying. Go after something that unless God shows up, there's no way it could be achieved. Is to join hands and, and lock arms with other local churches in this community and lead the way that we might see South Florida transformed in our generation. Because if God has put us here in South Florida, if South Florida can be transformed, imagine the reach around the world because of the strategic nature of the city we live in. If you can transform South Florida, you can literally impact the region and the world. And he's saying, West Pines, I'm calling you to something bigger. And so we're saying, okay, Jesus, you're calling us something bigger. bigger. What are our next steps? And so we've, we've been talking about there's three practical next steps that we're taking. The first is we talked about how we're expanding our kids' space. We want nothing holding us back from reaching kids and students and families. And that, that part, step one, is already underway. We're doubling the size of our kids' ministry space. That's already happening right now. Step number two is that we feel called in the next 18 months to establish a second campus that's going to serve as a beachhead. In other words, a strategic location in enemy territory. Where we've moved into another part, another neighborhood, where we say, okay, in this part of our city, we're going to be cranking out full-throttle followers of Christ because we know a full-throttle follower of Christ, is a world changer. They change their school. They change their neighborhood. They change their friend group. God uses them to change their family. They change the, the area that they're in. And so if we can have another, another beachhead for the gospel, another location for the gospel, we'll see more transformation happening there. And so in the next 18 months, we intend to, to establish a second campus for West Pines. And then in the next three to five years, we, are, we feel God is calling us to establish another campus that will serve in the most strategic location possible that will resource the other campuses and will broadcast through the other campuses. That's our plan in the next three to five years. Why are we doing that? It's not to build our church. We're doing that because we know we're carriers of the gospel. We're going in the power of Jesus' name. And he said, I intend 
to transform. I, that's what I do when I go through a community, go through a city, and we're saying, God, we want to take the power of the gospel into our city and watch what you can do. And so we've said in this strategic time, our response is going to be, God, you are going to need to stretch us in the area of generosity. And so we believe, God, we believe we've said to Jesus, our mission is we want to be all in, hold nothing back, followers of Christ. And so he said, okay, that's going to include your generosity. And so we've said, okay, we're not going to be one of those churches that just talks about it. We're going to be one of those churches that steps up and does it. And we've introduced things like this commitment card where we're filling this out and actually saying, okay, Jesus, what are you calling me to do in the category of generosity? And we're saying, okay, we're not just going to talk about this. We're going to do something. And why would we want to be stretched in the area of generosity? Well, in week one, we talked about this reason, because we look at a city that we love, and we see its deep lostness. And there are millions of souls, including our, some of our family members and our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers, Names that we know, faces that we know, and, and what we know is that they're facing an eternity away from Jesus Christ. And we've said there is no way we are going to sit by and do nothing. We've said there's a deep lostness, there's deep brokenness and hurt and pain in our city. There are marriages that are breaking. There's, there's children and students that are vulnerable. There are, there's deep brokenness in our city, and we cannot carry the name Christian, the name of our Savior, Christ, and sit by and do nothing. So why are we saying, yes, we're not just going to talk about this. We're going to take a step. Stretch us, Jesus. Why? Because you've, he's stirred up our compassion, our deep compassion for this city. But in week two, we said that's not the only reason we're saying God stretches. It's because we realize we've been put here on this planet, and he left us here with a job to do. But this isn't our home. We know we are going to spend an eternity. Our hope, our expectation, our belief that we cling to is that this is not our home that one day he will rise us up, that we will spend eternity in heaven, millions and billions of eras in heaven. And we're asking ourselves, if that's where we're going to spend our eternity, then it would be wise for us to do right now what will matter, not next year, not at the end of our lives, not in 10, 15, 20, 30 years, but what will matter in a billion years. That's what we want to give our lives to do, something that has eternal value. But I want you just to take a second with me and push in to this passage here because there's another reason that Jesus is wanting to stretch us in the area of generosity. I want you to think about this for a second. Why is God saying, hey, I want to reach this city and I want you to join in that process, not in many ways, including your generosity? Why is God asking that? Is it because God needs our generosity? Of course not. He's God. The Bible says he has cattle on a thousand hills, is what it says. He owns everything, it says. He owns the earth and everything in it and everybody who lives in it. What that means is he owns every diamond mine and every diamond that's ever been mined out of it. 
That means I hate to break it to the royal family. He owns those diamonds too. He owns everything. He has control over everything. Does he need us? No, absolutely not. He's welcoming us and asking us to join. Well, why then? Why is he asking us to join in with what he's doing? Well, maybe it's this little test. Like he wants us to have to go through something hard to like just test our sincerity. And it's like we have to run this gauntlet or do these chores just to kind of prove to him that we really mean it. That's never how God operates. What did Jesus say? He said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Can we just ask a different question today as we're thinking about this season where he's stretching us? What if God's saying, I'm calling you to greater levels of generosity for you? What if he's saying, yes, I want you to join in this work, but what if he's also saying, look, there's something powerful that generosity does for you in your life. You say, well, what does that do in my life? Generosity is such a critical thing that God wants for us in our life. Generosity squelches a rebellion. What do you mean? What kind of rebellion? There's one rightful king over this planet, and that's Jesus Christ. There's one rightful king that's supposed to sit on the throne of our lives, and that's Jesus. But every now and then, and maybe not every now and then, maybe all the time, there's this rebellion that's trying to take over of other, other things that want to be on that throne. And one of the most fierce rebellions for us in our society, in our culture, is what wants to be on the throne? Money. Materialism. Greed. It's a rebellion against the one true king. And when greed and money get control or start to get control of our lives, it's a cruel dictator. I mean, think about it. We, we know the answer to these questions. Um, we know that money, a little bit more money, well, if I got a little bit more money, then I'd be happy. We know that's not true, right? If I had a little bit more money, then all of my problems would go away. We know that's not true, right? We know, well, if I can just get a little bit, then I'll be secure and safe. No, see, money and stuff and materialism is a poor dictator. First of all, it always fails us, doesn't it? It always fails. I remember one time I was sitting in uh, my uh, community group and the community group leader was sharing. We were all kind of circled up and I think we had just broken off. It was just a group of us guys and we're sitting out on the back porch and we're talking about how, you know, stuff, we're talking about our stuff and how so often, like, you get something new and you're like, wow, this is so cool, but how quickly that, that kind of high of getting something new just kind of quickly plummets and then you're on to what's the next thing. And we're talking about how, how Jesus says, he says, you know, the things that you get here, like why would you invest in the things that moths can destroy and things can rust over? In other words, the stuff that you can get here, 
you know, it, it breaks so easily. And I was just about to, and I was sitting there, and other guys were sharing, and, and I was just about to say something. I remember I was sitting there, and I was just about to say, and in my mind, this was going to be really profound. And I was going to say this, and I was like, okay, this is going to be powerful. And I was going to say, yeah, stuff, man. It, it just, it always breaks. And I was sitting there, and I had my phone on my lap. And just as I went, yeah, stuff always breaks, my phone falls on the ground and the screen smashes into a thousand splinters. Thanks for that, God. Appreciate it. So I had the privilege of not just sharing that truth, but demonstrating that truth to my community group. It's so true, isn't it? You, um, you feel such freedom with your old couch, you know, you... You're, you sit and eat nachos while you're watching a, a football game. Your kids crawl over the old couch. They can spill on the old couch. Who cares? It blends in at this point. <laughs> but then you get a new couch. And when you're bringing it home and when you're waiting for it to be delivered, you're so excited. And look at this pristine couch that we've got. And then the kids walk in with their sippy cup. And all of a sudden, you have a panic attack. Okay, no, don't spill on that. Or you get that new shirt, and you've got your coffee to go in the morning as you're driving. And you never thought of it before, but this time, you're sipping it so carefully as you go. I mean, stuff, it fails us, doesn't it? It fails us so, so quickly, but it's worse than that. See, here, none of us really want to say, yeah, I'm greedy. I don't think anyone would say that. But without realizing it, stuff climbs its way onto the throne. And it robs our joy. We all have experienced this. Because our culture is constantly dangling new things that we don't yet have and teaching us that we want it. And it shows us that one thing that we don't have. And now all of a sudden, that's all we can think. Oh, I want to get that. How can I get that? And maybe I'll go get that. And, and then we get it. We're like, wow, this is exciting. And then before we even realize it so fast, we're like, wait, what's that thing? And what if I had that thing? And now all I'm thinking about is what I don't yet have. And watch how this cycle works. It puts me into a cycle where I'm always wanting what I don't have robbing me of ever enjoying what I do have. And so I, I've got, I'm fixated on one thing I don't have when I literally have thousands of things that I do have and am finding no joy in it. And so Jesus is saying, he's saying, I want generosity for you. I don't need it. He's saying, I want to do a work. And yes, he's saying, I'm planning on doing a work in this city and I'm wanting you to be a part of it so you can share in the pure joy of doing something that matters for eternity. But he says, there's a whole nother level that he's saying, I'm, I'm calling you into generosity because I'm intending that you have an abundant life and I'm wanting to call you into that. It not only topples something that's on the throne, but it rightfully puts someone on the throne. Generosity puts God on the throne, and there's a dynamic that God responds to our faith. He says, oh, you're putting me on the throne. Let me show you how well I can take care of you. I don't fail. I don't break. I don't go out of style. 
and I can provide more joy into your life, flooding into your life than you can possibly imagine. There's only one time in the Bible where God says, yes, I'm God, but I want you to test me. In this one place, he says, it's okay. In fact, I'd welcome the contest. He says, how about this? You embark on the adventure of generosity, and you see if you can outgive me. He says, I know that, you know, you've read other passages. You're not supposed to test the Lord your God, but I'm going to make an exception for this, he says. Let's have a go. He says, you want to test me on this? Bring it. Because when you show that step of faith and put me on the throne, you use your generosity to topple that and say, no, I'm not going to be ruled by what I don't yet have. I'm going to actually enjoy what I do have. And to demonstrate that, I'm going to, I'm going to participate in generosity and explore greater generosity in my life. And God says, when you do that, you're putting me on the throne. I respond to that, God says. Watch what happens. Remember this quote that we read? We read this... Um, couple weeks back, and, and this, this is a truth that Christians throughout history have clung to. This is out of a church father who wrote in a book called The Shepherd of Hermas, and this is in A.D. 125, thousands of years ago. And listen to how he put what it looks like when we engage in generosity, giving back to the Lord. Look, look how he put it. He says, this lavish expenditure is beautiful and joyous. It does not bring grief or fear, but joy. So do not practice the extravagance of outsiders, for it is unprofitable to you, the servants of God. But do practice your own extravagance in which you can rejoice. He says, here's what I'm telling you, Christian. Live an extravagant life. I'm calling you into a life of extravagance, but there's two different ways you can define extravagance. You can define extravagance by how the world defines it, of wait, I don't have that yet, what if I got that, and what if I got a better this, and a better that, and a better this, and a better that, and he says that just brings grief and fear, constantly worrying that I won't get it, and vacuuming out all the joy and contentment that I could have. He says, you Christian have an extravagance all your own, a lavish expenditure all your own. And I want you to see why he's motivating you to go after the extravagance of generosity for joy. He's saying that's a joy you don't even know how great it is yet. So I'm calling you into that extravagance. I want to take a second and I want you to see a couple stories of a few people who share, and they're beautiful stories very similar to the encounter that Jesus saw and what they saw God do in their lives as they explored the adventure of generosity. Check out this video. I was behind on my bills, so I went into the book of Malachi. What I got out of it is, if you want your storehouses to overflow, just give. 
blind faith give, and I got the impression that God was saying, test me. Miraculously, in my mind, I didn't go bankrupt or stop paying my bills, and I started to realize the dynamic that was coming through the words in the Bible, which is, I was being blessed by God, and even though I had this sneaky little feeling like, oh, if I'm gonna make more money, then I guess I gotta give more, but it's the reverse of that. You get to give more. I came into my office one day, and uh, my business partner said, can we talk for a minute? And he said, I need to know who you are and what did you do with Augie Bucci? Because my life went 180. This is a woman who had very, very little all her life, but she always told her children that it was so important to give to the Lord. No matter what she had, she had to give, and then uh, wonder where she was gonna get her next meal. And somebody from the church would either leave a bag of groceries on the doorstep, but she always had enough food to feed her children. Granny lived to a wonderful age of 90, and at her funeral, her pastor was giving her eulogy and talking about what a wonderful woman she was, but also mentioned that she had been the church's most generous tither. And it was so funny, all the family is sitting on the front row looking at each other like, where in the world did our grandmother get all this money? And then they realized it was their money that they were sending monthly that she was giving to the church. One thing that she taught me is that in those tough times of her life, that was priority, realizing that just giving out of faith, the Lord will provide. My name is Mary Ann, and I want to be as faithful in giving as Granny was because I'm all in. My name is Augie. I love giving, and I'm all in. I love those stories. And I want you to just hear the testimony of those stories. This is a new season for our church. He's saying, West Pines, you love the city that you're in, right? You love the city. You see and you weep and you're brokenhearted for its lostness, for its pain, for its brokenness. You can imagine what would happen if the gospel swept through your city. You can dream of the impact even beyond the, the borders of our country if, if God moved through this city. He says, so I'm calling you to take action and not just think about it and talk about it and cheer for it. Take action from your, from your compassion. He's saying, West Pines, he says, I know that so many of you have this burden to say, God, I want this life to count for something. It's got to be more than just the day-to-day -day of trying to build my own kingdom. I mean, it's, it's got to matter for something. And he says, it does. I'm, he says, I'm calling you to be a part of something that matters for eternity. So I'm calling you to just not just think about it, not just say it, but, but in faith respond and do something that matters a billion years from now. He's saying, church, come together and do something together. 
for something that matters a billion years from now. But he's saying, as a father, he's saying, and you don't even know what this will do for you. He's saying, I want this for you. Here's what we're doing next week. It's the culmination of our series. And we're taking this commitment card, and this is where we are going to together say, we're not that type of church that just talks about it. We're going to do it. If you're our guest, there is, of course, no expectation that you would be a part of this. You're welcome to join us, but it's more important that you see our heart as a church. We love this city. We believe what God says, and he is in whom we put our faith and our trust. And so next week, we're going to bring these commitment cards in together. And what I'd ask is, would you just take a moment and pull out this card with me for a second? You got one of these in the bulletin when you came in. Would you just take out this card for a second? You do not want to miss the powerful demonstration of next week that we're going to do together. Together, we're going to bring in these cards And the challenge, the number one challenge above everything else is that every single one of us are saying, yes, God, I'm in. And our ultimate goal is that 100% of those who call West Pines their church homes, their, their church home, every one of those households fills out a card and says, we are a church that takes action. You may be joining us Live online right now, there's a link there. I want you to follow along with us on this card. Open up that link if you're joining us online. And let me walk you through this card. This is the week to do this. Don't let the week slip by you. Maybe you set aside some time later tonight, this evening. Maybe when the, you, the kids go to bed, you and your spouse sit down and you pray through this together. You'd start by at the beginning, like take out your card. I want you to know how to fill this out. That first top line is where you say, okay, this is where I'm at now in my generosity. And you'd fill that out. Maybe you say, I've never really taken that step. Maybe for you that you put a zero there. Or maybe you'd say, you know what? Yes, I, I have taken some steps. This is what I normally give. But that, then this next line is when you start praying. And you say, Jesus, all that I have is yours. And I want to be a part of something that matters for eternity. So show me. What are you stretching me, calling me to do? And in that next line underneath, you say, okay, this is how you're calling me to stretch this year. And you add those together, that's the total annual this year that you're saying, this is what I'm committed to this year. We're doing this for two years. It's a two-year initiative. So as you're moving across the card, you multiply that by two. You put that total there. And then that next line, we've talked about this for a couple weeks. That's the line that we're most excited to see what God does. This is, that line is the most raw, ancient, early church book of Acts kind of thing where we look around at the stuff and the resources and the assets in our life and say, this is just sitting there, but what if I liquidated this or sold this and used that for something that matters for eternity? What if this could be a part of saving souls? And so you'd figure that out, put that in that box, and in the blue box, you'd say, okay, this Jesus is what I'm committing to being a part of this initiative. Why? Because I want to see South Florida transform for the gospel that badly. And you'd put your name, uh, you'd write your name in there, and you're basically saying, I have names that are flashing through my mind. You're saying, I know homes that are broken. You're saying, I know people that I can't stand the thought of living in eternity without. 
And I'm not going to sit by and do nothing. I'm going to join the work that my church is doing. I'm in. And we're going to turn this in together next week as a powerful demonstration. But one last thought for you. What if Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to fill this out for you? Unleash the power of generosity and the joy it brings in your life this week. We're going to take action this week, and next week we're going to do something historic together. Why? Because it boils down to this. Our Savior, the one whose name we bear, Christ, the one we're saying we're following, he was all in for us. And he called us to follow in his footsteps. Do you know how all in he is for you? Do you know that he has eternity waiting for you? You say, you don't know how far I am from God. That can all change right now. He has open arms to you saying, I gave everything because I love you extravagantly. Surrender your life to him today. Can we just have a moment of prayer and commitment this morning? Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Because I believe that there are those here today, maybe those watching online right now, and you say, look, I'm not sure if I died right now that I would spend eternity in heaven. You talk about billions of years from now. I don't know where I'd be. Do you know he died so that you could know? He died on the cross to pay for your sins and rose again in the same way that you too will rise when you die. And you can know that for certain today. that's who you want to put your faith in Jesus, then right here in your seats, in your, in your heart, pray these words in your heart. Just pray this simply. Say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Jesus, thank you for giving all to save me. I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sins. And I think you rose again from the dead. And I believe I'll spend eternity in heaven with you because of that. I surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.